Well, welcome to Life Community. If you are new around here, we just want to uh, extend a special welcome to you. We are glad you're here. Thanks for coming out on a Saturday night. Now, how many of you are, are afraid of heights? A few of you. Okay. Now, how many of you who didn't just raise your hand, you wouldn't say you're afraid of heights, but you have a hef- healthy respect of heights? Yeah. Like you're okay when you know you're harnessed up and all that and you're safe. Some of you, uh, anybody done any rock climbing, rappelling, anything like that? Yeah, I've done some of that growing up, and it's kind of fun. And after a while, you sort of get so you're used to being up there. Um, But some of you are, are, some of you have done pro rock climbing. So there's sport rock climbing, and that's what I've done a little bit of, which is you're anchored to a really sturdy anchor point, you know, like a bolt in the rock up above you, and somebody's belaying you down below. And really, if you fall, you can only fall like that far, usually. And that's the kind I like. That makes me feel <laughs> comfy and safe. There's this other called, kind called pro, and so that's where you go up and you place these little pieces of, like, uh, you know, protection. They're called protection. That's why pro, right? So you're put, placing in these things that'll catch you in the cracks and stuff as you go up. And the problem with that is you have to climb past that so you don't just fall that far. You fall however far you are from there down to that next bolt and then a little further down, right? So I did that with my brother one time, and he was leading, right? And so that means you go up first and you do that whole scary thing that I just, and, and then the next guy, you just get to come up and, you know, you're all, it's all cushy the whole way up. It's all good, right? And so he gets up and he gets to the crux of this one move. We're over on the monument and he burns himself out. He just like, he keeps falling on this move and he can't make the move. And finally he's like, I'm just tired. And he comes down and he's like, I'm not leaving that piece of gear up there. You got to go up there and finish the climb. And I was like, uh, no, but he convinces me. And so I'm coming up and I climb up this thing and I still remember the terrifying feeling. This is the only time I've ever done this uh, of climbing up above your, your, your anchor, right? That you've placed in there. Because the other thing is you're always wondering if I fall, is it going to hold? Which my brother just proved to me it did. So I should have been okay. Um, but I climb up above it. I reach for it and I, may, I land it. I make the hold, right? And finished the climb, and I was like, whew. But it was terrifying. Um, Actually, I watched this movie. Um, I wasn't going to tell that story, so I'm a little off track, but that's all right. This is fun. (laughs) I watched this movie. Have any of you seen the movie Free Solo? A few of you. If you haven't, let me just tell you, it's a documentary. You should watch it. It's it's terrifying. I... (laughs) A while back, I watched it on an airplane, and I was so scared. It's about the first attempted free solo climb of Yosemite, of El Capitan in Yosemite, which is crazy. If you don't know about rock climbing, it's like the impossible, essentially, right? And so it's just insane. And this movie, I I was so scared on this little tiny airplane TV. It was like the most intense movie I've ever watched and as I'm watching it, I was so scared, I had to like close my eyes on parts, because I didn't know how it would end, and I'm not telling you how it ends, because uh, I want you to experience it like I did. But now that's a whole different level of crazy, right? So here, here's what I'm saying. There's fear that serves you, and there's fear that you serve. And in a way, um, fear of heights is a fear that can serve you, right? Right? 
at least the healthy respect? Yes, that is a fear that will serve you because you are not the dude or the dudette to go try climbing El Capitan without a rope. Just trust me, okay? That's not me. That's not anybody in this room. And so there's a healthy fear when it comes to heists that, you know, just sort of, it's like inbred, born, you're born with it, right? And you understand that I don't want to die that way, right? Prefer old in my sleep or uh, that one really bad uh, joke, which is peacefully in my sleep, not like the people in my grandfather's car screaming on the way over the cliff. That was awful. Another fear of heights joke. So. so anyway, there's fear that serves you, and then there's fear that you serve. And now this is different in life, right? The thing that inspires you to get life insurance is actually kind of that motivation of fear, right? Because you understand how much you care for your family. And because of that, you know, your fear for them is that something would happen to you and, um, and then, you know, they wouldn't have the financial means to support themselves. And so that's actually a fear that serves you in a way. It serves your family, right? But sometimes we serve fear, don't we? You know, we all fear something. We all have fears that we end up serving, I read a short article um, by a leading uh, psychiatrist who, who said that there's really two dominant emotions that drive all the others, fear and love, love and fear. And these are two different things that, that drive us in life. And, you know, joy and happiness all come out of that sense of, of love, love for others, love for God, love for life. But then fear drives so many things. A lot of anger is actually, when you trace it down, the roots all the way down, it's coming because you're afraid of something. And somebody does something that puts a finger on that fear thing in your life, right? And before you know it, you react, you lash out in anger, fear of loss. I don't know what your thing is, but I know as I think of things I'm afraid of, I, I'm driven a lot, and I'm, af- I'm afraid of or being seen as less than, as not capable. And that's something that as I look at some of my behavior, sometimes some of the things that drive me, I can recognize that there's this, there's this fear of being seen as less than you know, successful or less than competent in an area. I realize um, there's a fear, perhaps some of you can identify with this, the fear of losing what you've worked so hard for. Like trying crazy things when you're 19 years old, um, like, you know, going around the world, leaving everything, going around the world. It's a whole different thing than when you're in your, your 40s or your 50s or 60s, right? Because when you're 19, for the most part, you don't have anything to lose. It's like, yeah, I'll sell everything and go off and be a missionary, you know? Sounds great. Sign me up, right? But you get a little bit older, and all of a sudden, there's something to lose now, right? The stakes are a little bit higher. It's complicated. You have a family, right? And so a lot of times, I think we hold on to life and the things in our life with tightly gripped hands. We talk a lot about open hands here at this church. but We, t- we, we hold things with tightly gripped hands because there's this thing of fear, and I recognize this thing of fear in me of, you know, man, Worked so hard to get where I am. Put in so much effort 
And I, and I don't want to lose that, right? Or the loss of family, of loved ones. If you're a parent, you know this, right? Because as soon as you have a kid, everything changes, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, there's that little, you know, baby that pops out, and they didn't do anything, but you just love them. You love them so deeply. Before you know it, a lot of our greatest fears, if you're a parent, a lot of our greatest fears revolve around our kids, don't they? And the things we fear with our kids, and when we see them making decisions, when we're afraid of activities or things they do when they start rock climbing. <laughs> My brother, he's a big outdoorsman, and so he's just learned I don't even tell mom when I'm going to go do these things, right? He tells her when he gets back, hey, I was just on a search and rescue on a Blackhawk. It was awesome. I'm fine. <laughs> Not before, you know, that's good for my mom that he does that. That's advice. If you're a young man in here, be kind to your mother. Be good to your mother. I think another thing that collectively that a lot of people would say, hey, this is, this is my thing, is a fear of being found out. Right? A fear of like, if people just knew the real me, would I be loved? Would I be accepted? I think it's the thing that drives a lot of us. And so what we're going to see in this account, I think, and what we want to wrestle with in this topic as we go through the scripture today is, what if we could live our lives from a different place? What if... What if we could trade the dominant thing that we fear that drives us and produces so much angst and stress and anxiety in our lives for something that produces good fruit in our lives instead. Now, to catch you up, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. God makes a promise to Abraham that I will make you a great nation. And even though you're old, your wife's barren, you don't have any kids. It's crazy, I know, but it's going to happen. It's my promise, and I'm going to carry it out. I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. So the heart of God to bless his creation and to bless humanity from the very beginning, now he says, I'm going to work out through you, Abraham. Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. And the people of Israel now, 70 people go down to Egypt. Basically, a big family goes down to Egypt. Flash forward 400 years, and that's where we're going to pick it up. It says this, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, what I said last week is, if you're just starting the book Exodus, you know, this is the stuff you skip over because you want to get to Moses and the plagues and, you know, all that stuff that you know is coming. But there's something so exciting happening right here in the opening verses of this book. Instead of just skipping over the names and all that, what's happening here is God is fulfilling his promise in a remarkable way. Because at this point, the nation of Israel just keeps increasing. Verse 8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came into power. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave 
the country. And so what starts as this epic fulfillment of this promise that God had made to Abraham all these hundreds of years before, now we see there's a twist. And they, don't, they find themselves in the midst of God fulfilling the promise, and yet it looks nothing like they thought it would. And so last week, we said, in our lives, maybe God, we had three maybes for you last week, and one of them was this, maybe God is keeping his promises, but you just don't understand it yet. And see, so many times the way that God works things out in our lives is different than the way we think it's going to happen. And because of that, we wonder, where's God? And we also saw last week that maybe God has you where he has you to grow you. During this time, the nation of Egypt was one nation on earth that believed they had this pure bloodline, and so they wouldn't intermarry with anyone. Besides that, shepherds were stinky, icky to them. They didn't like those people. And so they stuck them up in this, what's actually the best part of the land, Goshen, but they are away from the rest of the people versus this family of 70 people being up in Canaan, surrounded by all these Canaanite nations like the Amorites and all these people. They would have just intermarried with and ceased to be a people group. They would have just dissolved into the people. God actually brings them down to the place where they're separated out, where he can build a nation. So Egypt becomes the incubator of a nation. And sometimes God has you in a place where he just has you where you are because he has to grow you. And the situation that you're in, you don't like it, but it's growing your character. It's growing your faith. It's growing you for what he wants to get you to. So that's what we saw last week. Now, here's what's happening here. Because this Pharaoh, this king, He says, they're going to become more and more numerous if we don't do something, if we don't take action. And then really, if war breaks out, what's going to happen? They're going to join our enemies. They're going to fight against us. And what? They're going to leave the country. See, this king has this realization that this people group has become a big economic asset to them. And you just get this picture of all these conversations going on behind the scenes in the palace of the Israelite problem. We don't want to just exterminate them because they're too valuable to us, but we need to somehow make the population stop growing. And see, he begins to manipulate, politically manipulate his people, and he uses fear to do it. Good thing that never happens in politics today, right? (laughs) But he begins to manipulate the people and use fear to manipulate the people that this people group is a danger to you. This people group is threatening us. We need to do something about them. We need to take them out. He has to inspire fear. And I think it's so significant as he's about to launch really genocide against these people. As he does so, there's an underlying motivation and that motivation is an underlying financial motivation. And I think that's so significant because they, the, the people had, been gone, had gone from being seen as you know, this people that had come in and blessed them and, and sort of saved the nation to just a commodity, just people who exist for our benefit to make us wealthy and rich. The same thing as you could say in, in, in the slave days, right? They ceased to become people and just became a commodity, And so the fear of a loss of financial advantage for Pharaoh and for the people of Egypt led them to do things they would have never probably considered. 
And I think that's really a good thing for us to pay attention to. Paul and Timothy puts it this way. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That nothing wrong with money in and of itself, but when it captures and grabs hold of our heart, it can lead us to do things that we would have never thought we, did, we would do. To make decisions around the way we treat people ethically, how, how our lives go, that we, we, we would never have thought we would have done that, right? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In fact, guys, men, I, I like using this phrase because it's so easy for you to remember. There's usually typically only three things that, that, that you deal with most of the time that we deal with as men. Girls, gold, and glory. I guarantee it. Look at your struggles and, and, and look at the things and the times you've gotten off track and the times you've fallen down and the times you've made lousy decisions you regret. And it probably has something to do with one of those, right? Girls, gold, or glory. The lust of the eyes, right? The lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Three things that just trip people up. So guys, just pay attention to this. I, it's, it's not really the point, but I think it's an important thing because the people descend into depths they never thought they would do against their neighbors. You know, I'm sure there were some warm relationships. But here's what happens, verse 11. And so he convinces the people group. We don't know how long, but we read this quickly, but it's a process. So, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So in this one or two sentences, it's been long enough for ancient workers to build cities. This is a significant period of oppression that, that, that they're under right now. This is cool. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. In the midst of this, the most powerful conniving man in the world and the most powerful nation in the world at this time could not successfully resist the plan of God. That should be encouraging. Because boy, he tries. Boy, he tries, but he's thwarted. And, and here's how it starts. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on their delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Now this is a whole different level of sick. He enslaves the people, but now that plan isn't working. They keep multiplying. The problem, the Israelite problem, just get, keeps getting worse. We got to take care of this problem. And so this is a whole new level. This is a whole new low, isn't it? This is evil. So he tells the midwives, he gathers the midwives up. And the thing about the, the Hebrew text is there's no indication in the text whether they're actually of Hebrew nationality or not. In fact, the text, Jewish scholars think that they probably were Egyptian because why in the world would, would Pharaoh ever think that two Hebrew midwives are going to do what he says? 
And so we, we think that there's a strong likelihood that these two midwives are actually Egyptian. What's really cool is their response. So Pharaoh says, kill him. If it's a baby boy, kill him. Why? Why does he say just if it's a baby boy? Because girls were really no threat to them at that point. He was thinking this, right? Girls aren't a military threat. They'll grow up. They can serve us. We can traffic them. They're a commodity. In fact, at this time in history, really women could be traded. I mean, women were, were treated much like a commodity to begin with. And so he thought that the women will do us good. They can serve us in our, in our households, but let's kill off some of these young boys who will grow up to try to be warriors and fight against us. It's just a sick plan. So verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And here's what's so cool about this. In the midst of this, perhaps uh, we think the first recorded instance of civil disobedience in, in recorded history, these midwives become the heroines in the story. They say, nope, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And here's the cool thing. And I think this is so significant. We know the names of these two midwives 3,500 years later. We do not know the name of this Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. I think it's so cool. We know their names. In fact, this name, uh, the first one, Shipra, is still a very popular lady's name in Israel today. So we know their name. Now, let me just, I just want to do a little, like, talk to some people in the room that uh, perhaps, perhaps your idea of the Old Testament or of the Bible to begin with is that the Bible is really sort of just this um, misogynist text that promotes the patriarchy, kind of a a prominent thought in our culture today. Here's what's so cool about this. Now, in Exodus, Leviticus, you'll, you'll see some laws that seem to um, reflect the culture of the day. But in this point in world history, actually what's happening here in the Torah and in the New Testament is pretty amazing. It's actually very forward-thinking and very subversive. And see, you can rip certain things out of context and try to make this argument about you know the scriptures and faith and the God of the Bible um, you know, being anti-women, but you place these texts in their original context in the point in history where they were written, and they were incredibly forward-thinking and subversive. I love it. In fact, I, as I was researching this, this week, I found this quote. It says this, the subject of women in antiquity is a fascinating but admittedly difficult pursuit. Women's voices in ancient times were largely ignored or silenced in literature historical narratives, philosophical discourse, and political lives. In other words, it's really hard to study ancient women in ancient history just because they get ignored. And right here at the beginning of the Torah, we have the names of two obscure midwives. But here's the thing. There's going to be, by the time we're done with this today, there's going to be multiple women that are featured as the heroes of the story. And this is seen all throughout the scriptures. Um, A short while later, you meet a a gal named Rahab. 
who just happens to land in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, you meet a great leader named Deborah. Um, Esther saves the Jewish people. Ruth is a heroine who is not even Jewish, a foreigner, just like perhaps these midwives are foreigners. And they're all heroines in the story. And the Bible gives them this place on the playing field. And what they did was recorded throughout history. And then you, then you get to the New Testament. And the first thing Matthew does is he starts out his genealogy. When they would only include men, he includes the names of three women. And women you would never expect. And then we go on to read about the prominent followers of Jesus who actually supported his ministry, who were women. And then the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And at this time in history, women weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. It's like God's putting his stamp, right? This is so subversive in the day. In fact, Paul writes, if you read the New Testament, the apostle Paul writes about a prominent woman apostle. He writes about women as fellow workers and leaders in spreading the gospel. He writes about uh, Junia, that was the apostle, right? He, he writes the scripture that we just read it and we're like, of course. But they read it and it, it's, it's like, what? In Christ, there's neither what? Male nor female, Jew nor Greek. We're all one on an equal platform. Now, he doesn't take out roles and the differences between uh, male and female as the reflection of the image of God, No. Each one is celebrated individually. But women are given this incredibly um, subversive place in the culture. It's like the Bible's just pushing the envelope when you read it. It's way ahead of its time. In fact, if you, this is still true today in many nations around the world. If you go to a nation that what, did not have a Judeo-Christian foundation and look at how women are treated versus how women are treated in Western nations, that even if they're walked away from that foundation or in the process of walking away from it, they, they were founded on biblical principles, the, the difference is remarkable. It's the further people walk away from biblical Christian values, the worse women are treated. There's a lot of nations that you would not want to be a woman in, right? And so these Midwives have the fear of God. And they refuse to do what the king said. And so the king summons them in, verse 18. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? It's almost like he's shocked. And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> so they just make up a crazy lie. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing about this is when it says they're vigorous, this, this word in Hebrew actually can connotate animals, which, if you think about it, as they tie into this Pharaoh's um, racism and hatred, he views these people as less than human, right? Just as commodities. So he doesn't really... This doesn't shock him, and they don't get punished. Apparently, they believe this lie, or he believes the lie, right? Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing is, this lie doesn't bother God at all. In fact, verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased, 
and became even more numerous. Does that mean that was okay? In this situation, yes. To stop a genocidal murder, mass murderer? Yeah. So the people became even more numerous. And because the midwives, what? Again, feared God. He gave them families of their own. And and there's something so cool in this little phrase that you probably don't recognize. Like families are, family's good, right? We we know that. We believe that. But there's some of you that just, your hearts cry as to be married. Ladies, perhaps, men. These ladies didn't wait till they had their family and sort of were established to get to the things that God was calling them to do. They got to it. And if you're, you're here and you're a single lady or a single guy in this room and your heart is to, to be in a relationship and married and have a family, don't sit around waiting. Get to the things that God wants you to get to. Pursue life with everything you've got and trust that he is gonna bring that in his time. And in his way. But what I really want to key in on is the midwife's motivation. What was their motivation? It was the fear of God. In other words, they cared more about what God thought about the situation than what Pharaoh thought. And I think this concept of the fear of God, you see it all throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament depending on your background and perhaps the family you grew up in and perhaps you, you know, what your father was like, you, you may have a very skewed idea of what it means, what the fear of God means. Because the fear of God, we think of fear and we just think of being afraid, right? We think of me climbing or sitting and watching that silly um, documentary f- being scared, right? And although there... Th- the, the Hebrew definition of the word includes that. It, it's much more broad than that. It can mean that negative, like dread of something or terror, but it can be positive, like worship and reverence. It can mean respect all the way up to just awe. Oh. So it carries this, this big, huge idea. And so we see for for believers, uh, the author of Hebrews writes, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And there's this idea of just having reverence for God and awe for God. It's a recognition of God's holiness. Now, when it comes to this idea, and this is the thing you have to understand, and this is perhaps the motivating thing for these midwives, is in their understanding at this time, really until Jesus came and laid it out so that we can understand it for those who place their faith and trust in him, there is an aspect of understanding that you, that God is the ultimate judge. Many of you would drive a lot faster than you do if there was not a judge. Many of you did drive a lot faster than you do now because you stood in front of a judge and you got some points taken off and now you're, you have a fear of the judge. And see, if there is one judge, which the Bible says, who every one of us will have the opportunity to stand in front of after our lives and give an account, it changes things, doesn't it? 
changes things radically. Now, here's what we know, and here's what the gospel tells us. Here, here's what Jesus reveals. Um, actually, Jesus said this, and it's, uh, it's so interesting. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. It's like, really, Jesus? That's what I'm afraid of. Anybody else? Yeah. That's why I don't go through the hood in the middle of the night, right? He says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's like, okay. Then he goes on, and this is interesting. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So he says, this thing that drives us so often when it comes to the fear of other people, and even you know, at the far extreme of what somebody can do to you as far as killing you even, he said, that's not, shouldn't be that high on your concern list. You should care a lot more about what God thinks. But we also learned something about him, that he is a kind, good, heavenly father who knows how many hairs we have on our head. Now, granted, for some of you, that's not a challenge. <laughs> that's great. They always pick on me, so you can send them to Jason at LifeGJDoubles. So the picture we get from Jesus and, and really the, the concept that we see from Jesus is of our loving heavenly father. But the difference between just our idea of a father, the reason we're taught in the Lord's prayer to pray our father in heaven is because we pray, we're told we can come to God as followers of Jesus who put our faith and trust in him, if that's you and you've done that, that your fear is not of God as judge. Your fear of God when it comes to God is that you're going to stand in front of Christ and gosh, you don't want to disappoint him. Man, you want to, you, his opinion means more to you than anyone else in this world. That when you stand before your heavenly father, it's not a judge and a fear of heaven versus hell. If you've truly trusted in him, if you've embraced what Jesus did for you, but for you and I, there's that thing of we're going to stand before him and we're still going to give an account for what we've done, but we're going to account, give an account of how we stewarded our lives and the relationships in our lives and our time and what he's given and what we did for his kingdom. And what we want to hear is well done. That's how the fear of God begins to work itself out in the life of a believer having that awe and reverence for God that motivates us to do his will. In other words, you take God more seriously than anything else, anyone else's opinion in life. And necessarily, that causes you to walk in obedience to him. Understanding that what he asks us to do is because he's a gracious father who knows us best and desires your joy in life. That's the fear of God. And so these midwives have the fear of God. Then, verse 22, then the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people 
every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Let every girl let live. You see how this evil just keeps getting worse and worse? And now to a people who never would have thought they would ever do this, all of a sudden they they allow their hearts to begin to be filled with hatred and rage towards this other people group. And now the norm becomes that you can, to all the people, he says, hey, if you know of any Hebrews having kids, you throw that baby in the Nile. You kill that baby. Can you imagine that circumstance? The darkness of living through this? Systemic violence, the people's hearts were hardened. And you see the same kind of thing happened in Nazi Germany. This pattern that, that evil spirals. And right in the middle of this darkness, chapter two comes along. And we're going to move really quickly for, through a few verses of this. It says this, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Can you imagine the scene? Like we read this and it's, it's, we read it, and especially if you grew up in church, and even if you didn't, you saw the DreamWorks version, right? And so it's like, oh, the story. No, this isn't happy. This isn't, and they don't know the end of the story. They don't know the next chapter. Imagine the heartache. Moms, I mean, and it says, I, I, I don't know what this is all about when it said he, he was a fine boy, because what mom doesn't think that, Right? And the point is, we don't get their names till like six chapters later. And the point is, the, the author of, of, of this chapter is just saying, they're just two ordinary people. And they have a kid. And they, she does what any mom in the situation would do, is tries to hide that kid and shush that kid. And the kid's crying. And you got to try to keep that kid quiet. And the kid keeps growing. You know, newborn cries, if you've had kids, aren't so bad, right? They're kind of sweet for a little bit, like the first two nights. <laughs> no. But then they get to like four or five, six months, and all of a sudden it's like, they're loud. And all of a sudden it gets harder and harder to hide the baby. And at some point, dad's has to say, you're endangering the whole family. We know she's got like two other kids. Like if, it finds, if they find out we're not doing what we're commanded, the whole family, we're all dead. We got to do it. Can't even comprehend, right? And so she makes a basket, which in Hebrew is the exact same word for ark. Very, very symbolic. Places him in it. And I think strategically places him in a spot in the Nile where she thinks there's going to be some important people coming along. And it's a long shot at best. But she prays. And as she leaves that little baby there, she can't even stick around. You get that picture? Mom's not there because mom's scared to be there. Mom's there because she can't, she can't stand the thought of what would happen if the wrong person opens that basket. I can't see that. But little sister or big sister, she sticks around. And here's what happens. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter, princess, went down the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister did this. So princess has compassion. Princess has compassion. Rescues this baby. Baby's crying. They're trying to soothe the baby. Sister boldly runs up. Hey, do you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women to try to nurse this baby for you? And look what happens. She says, yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to him, her, take this baby, nurse her for me, and I'll pay you. <laughs> so the women took the baby and nursed him. Now, now here's what you got to understand. Pharaoh's desperate evil plan. First, we're going we're gonna to oppress them. Second, midwives kill him off. God keeps thwarting him. The most powerful guy in the world. And did you see what just happened? His princess, his daughter, is the one that God uses to thwart his plans. It doesn't get better than that. Isn't that amazing? When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And there's the hero, right? But before we ever get to the hero, did you realize there were five heroines in this story? Five heroines. And the very own princess. And, and here's the thing, the, the beautiful thing is that God chooses to work through those the world would write off. That's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. The last become first. If you want to be great, you got to be what? A servant. And, and here's what's so mind-blowing about this whole scene. Did Pharaoh know that Moses was a Hebrew? I think yes. But Pharaoh is so arrogant that he doesn't see what one harm one little. I mean, he's scared of the people group. He's going to kill them off. But he just doesn't have any... Ah, what's one, right? And besides that, my baby, my princess gets what, my, what she wants, right? You see how God uses that? God uses these women. And Pharaoh, the very thing, Pharaoh just disdained the girls. Throw the boys away, they're a threat. Let the girls live. And you see the, the, the amazing part of God here is using the women in the story before we ever even get to Moses, you know. He uses the women in this story to bring about the plan of redemption for his people. I've got a statement that I want you to take away. And just think about this week. What might God accomplish through the courageous obedience of a woman or man? And yes, I put that on there on purpose that way. Of a woman or a man who fears him. My little girl, she, uh, so if you're like my age, you grew, we grew up with Aladdin. You remember the old cartoon, Aladdin, Disney special? Yeah, I can remember all those songs. Uh, they came out with a new one this summer. 
And we took our family to see it. It was great. We really liked it. It was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, it, my kids were impressed because I knew all the old songs still. <laughs> so, but there's a brand new song on there. It's called Speechless. If you have a little girl, you probably know it. And my girl, she sang this. Uh, she, got, she, she loves princesses, always has, right? She's seven now, still loves princess dresses. I think it's the, the coolest thing. So she got a princess jasmine dress from Aladdin for Christmas. She put it on, and then she sang Speechless for our family. <laughs> and she gets to this one line. <laughs> I won't sing it for you because I'll lose it. But it says, I won't be speechless. And she starts belting it out with fire in her eyes. I'm like, you go, girl. Because you can change the world. You can change the world. She prayed for her grandma. I've told you that story with dedication and saw her grandma accept Jesus just weeks before she died. That little girl, I think, is going to be a world changer. And some of you have been holding back because you have fear that's holding you back and holding you down. You have things, places of obedience in your life that you know God is calling you to step into, but you're not stepping into them because you're scared of what somebody thinks. You're scared of what you might lose. What if, what if your greatest consideration was what God thought? What might you be able to accomplish for him and for his kingdom? What if you really cared more what God thinks than what others think? What if you could take that thing and hand it to him and say, I want to give this to you. And operate out of a reverence and an honor and a fear for you. A love for you. And put away this thing that's holding me back. What might God accomplish through you? If you could really catch a hold of this. Would you stand? And as I pray, I'm actually going to invite some of the people on our ministry team to come up, I'd like a couple people on either side of the stage. I just want to invite you. Um, I'm going to pray just short for you, but some of you, you need prayer for something. And there's something that's got a hold of you that you, you just wish you could let go of. And we're going to have some quiet music playing. And those of you that need to get prayer, get prayer before you leave here today. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for my friends. I just ask that you would just show them what they need to let go of so they can step into the things that you have for them, Lord. Thank you for preserving this amazing text for 3,500 years. Thank you for the courage of these women and and the, the role they played in our salvation. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.